Guys, we are starting a series called Live Generously. And we're going to be talking over the next three weeks about some very key words. Today we talk about joy. Next week we talk about compassion. And the third week we talk about action or, or serving and what that means. And I, I just want to say right off the bat, um, generosity is, is not just about money. It's about time. It's about talent. It's about what you give your life to. And I was just sitting there thinking as Dan was doing his meditation and Sean was doing his offering meditation and prayer, and I got to thinking to myself, I, I always, I had to be really honest, okay? So we're going to talk about tithing today, and I always just really struggle with it because it's such a big topic. But here's what I think I finally come to is, Giving, giving is not about a dollar amount. It's not, it's not about a percentage. Giving is about a heart. And the question really, not only this morning, but, but throughout this entire series and whatever we talk about is, is, does God really have your heart? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves as we talk specifically today about wealth and, and riches and money and any mention of the words wealth or money necessarily need to include one of, if not the richest men in all of American history. And I'm I'm not talking about Bill Gates. I'm not talking about Warren Buffett. Not even talking about anyone from the Vanderbilt family, which interestingly enough, totally bonus information. Did you know that the ancestor, the guy who started it all, his last name was not even Vanderbilt? Anybody, somebody really impressed me. Do they know who started the entire Vanderbilt family, what his last name was? He was from the Netherlands. His last name was actually Ertzun. All right. And he was from the village of DeBilt in the Netherlands. And so that's how the name got started. But I just thought it was very interesting. Uh, You know, whatever. Totally bonus information. Tuck that away. Please don't make that the one thing that you learn from the sermon today. The man I'm referring to is none of those guys, but it is none other than John D. Rockefeller. Guys, this man was rich beyond what you could even imagine. The oil tycoon and head of the Standard Oil Company, upon his death in 1937, Rockefeller was worth an estimated, do you want to guess how much he was worth in today's terms? $663 billion dollars. That's a lot of money. To put that kind of wealth into perspective, his net worth was four times greater than that of Bill Gates, who we consider in our modern time one of the richest men in the world. In fact, Rockefeller's riches far outpaced the net worth of the top three earners in the United States today. Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, and Bill Gates of Microsoft fame have a combined net worth of $258 billion. They're not even sniffing Rockefeller, the three of them together. Rockefeller's net worth transported into modern times was two to three times greater than the net worth of three guys combined. Wrap your head around that for just a moment. If you want even more perspective on Rockefeller's embarrassing resources that he had, the top eight wealthiest people in all of the world can't even measure up to one man. 
The eight richest people in the world today have a combined net worth of $561 billion. They still fall $100 billion short of one man, John Rockefeller. But there was one man in history who superseded all of John Rockefeller's wealth. A man who was playing in a completely different ballpark than these wealthy people. And he wasn't just playing in a different ballpark. He was playing a different game altogether when it came to money. The man was none other than King Solomon himself, whose estimated net worth in today's terms would come to, do you guys want to guess what his estimated net worth was? Do what? 23 million. That's a great guess. Nope. Anybody else? 2.1 trillion dollars. Folks, that's, that's a completely different level. The fortune of Rockefeller and today's eight richest people in the world wouldn't even sniff the assets available to the richest man in all of history. And in fact, at the pinnacle of his reign, we are told in Scripture that in a single year, King Solomon collected tribute payments of gold that weighed more in a single year. One year. And just gold, he collected over 39,000 pounds of gold. That is one rich man. However, despite the riches, despite the fame, despite the fortune, despite the renown that Solomon enjoyed he understood one thing very, very clearly. Money is something, but money is not even close to everything. That insight, in part, is what led him to write the book of Ecclesiastes that includes large sections on wealth and riches and the destructive potential of money. And, and the real purpose of Ecclesiastes is to force us to take our mortality very seriously, the temporal nature of everything very seriously, and to consider how we should live. And I want you to think about that as we move through the sermon today and through the next three weeks. That is a question that should ring over and over again. How should we live? Ecclesiastes knocks away all of the facades by which we disguise the fact that life is short, and all of our accomplishments, all of our possessions in life will pass away. One of the facades that we use to mask reality is, is, is wealth and money and riches. Guys, wealth does not give our life purpose or joy. In fact, those who pursue riches many times waste their life. They waste it in bitterness and anxiety and drudgery. Guys, let me say this, because I don't want to be the guy that steps up here and say, like, money, money really doesn't matter. Money does matter, all right? And Ecclesiastes affirms that. Much of the Bible affirms the fact. But Ecclesiastes also affirms that we need a strategy for managing it, for using it, for leveraging it. But wealth in and of itself is a fraudulent substitute for true contentment and joy in our lives. And in many ways, Ecclesiastes anticipates what the New Testament tells us over and over again, that only God's grace saves us. Only God's grace brings us true and lasting joy. This morning, if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to walk through Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 17. So turn in your Bibles if you have them with you. As we read, and what I want to do is I just want to stop at certain points because what I have for us this morning 
are seven pitfalls of pursuing riches. And I know that there are some of us in here that say, you know what, I, I don't care. I don't care about money. I don't care what it, what it is, what it can do. But if we all get very honest with ourselves, there is just the smallest part in every single person that says to themselves, I sure would like to have just a little bit more. In fact, how many of you when you're growing up, like I remember doing this, stupidest thing, I think every kid does this, all right? You look out in society and you see all these people that are rich and you just think to yourself, oh, one day I am going to be so rich like that too. And you have dreams about what you're going to do, what you're going to buy it on, and that you're going to go out and you're going to buy, you know, cheeseburgers from McDonald's and Big Macs and tacos from Taco Bell. You can tell this happens when you're in high school, all right? So, but we have all of these dreams, but we have to understand Money can be good, but money can also cause all kinds of pitfalls in life. The first thing, the first pitfall that it can cause is that seeking wealth is a never-ending quest. Solomon tells us that in verse 10 of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes. He says, those who love money very, very clearly, he says here, will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. I mean, like if you've got your Bibles out right now and you've got a pen, just take that, underline it, circle it, draw arrows to it. That is such an important verse. It's a never ending quest. You can never have it. Guys, this is the man who had $2.1 trillion to his record. And he says, it's not everything, guys. It's not even close to the most important thing. Those who seek to get rich never feel that they have enough. In fact, we talked about John Rockefeller. John Rockefeller was once asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? To which he responded, guess what? Just a little bit more. And don't we often operate with that mindset in our lives? Ooh, if I could just, I mean, like I'm not, I say this to myself sometimes, and my dad says this a lot too, like if I could just win the lottery, like all I'm asking for is like $100,000, all right? But as soon as you have $100,000, you know what then happens? Man, if I just had a million dollars, that would be pretty great too. It never, ever stops. The feeling reflects many of our hearts. That just a little bit more. We, we don't want a lot, just enough. And how much is enough, guys? Just a little bit more. Seeking wealth is a never-ending quest. Number two, attaining riches attracts the wrong people. Have you ever... Notice that in life? Have you ever seen stories of that that attracts the wrong people? The first part of verse 11 here, Solomon tells us, the more you have, the more people will come to help you spend it. Like, I don't know about you, but like if you're a parent or a grandparent or if you have kids around you, you know this truth, right? As soon as you get some money in the old wallet, who comes a knocking? Who comes a asking? And guys, it's not the wife. I'm talking about the kids, all right? The kids, all Put it, put it there. I did it when I grew up too. This is bad. People, those people care nothing for you. They just want your things and your stuff. Too many stories have been told of people who fell into large sums of money only to have family members come out of the woodwork to ask for just a little slice of the pie. Number three, once you acquire a vast amount of wealth, it has diminishing returns. And some of you may be sitting there going, what? How's that work out? If I get more money, I should have more return on my money. Here's how it works out in the second part of verse 11. Solomon continues. He says, so what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? 
When do you have too much? What, what good is it when you have too much stuff but just to, to look at it? I mean, even if you try to make the case that you could use it to buy stuff and to buy things that you could play with and toys, you're right back at square one. You buy shiny toys and all you can do is just sit back and look at them. What good does that do anybody? What good does that do you? The fourth thing, massive wealth generally leaves a person with heaps of anxiety. And I know that some people are sitting out there and be like, well, I sure would like to have more money to see if I really am more anxious. Guys, again, Solomon says it right here in verse 12. People who work hard sleep well. Whether they eat little or whether they eat much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Hardworking people of modest means are not as full of anxieties and sleep better than people who are rich. I don't have any scientific proof. I'm sure you can go find that. And some of you are saying, like, I don't know about you, Ryan. Not rich, but I have plenty of anxiety in my life. Take that and multiply that as, as the money gets larger in your account. The rich lie awake and they worry about their investments. In fact, Luke 12, 15 through 17 says it this way. Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told a story. He was talking to some people about this idea of money. He said a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? Do you hear it right here? Like what? I have so much money. I have so much stuff. I have so many possessions. What in the world should I do? That's anxiety, guys. Because I don't have room for all of my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. Do you see how it just escalates and never stops? The more you have, the bigger stuff you have to have to store it all in. Then I'll have room enough to store all of my wheat and all of my other goods. Number five, the wealthy often live a high stakes life. Guys, one bad deal for people who have a lot of riches could result in crushing loss. And it puts them, and most importantly, it puts everyone around them in harm's way, including their family. Verse 14, Solomon says this, money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. Which leads right into the next point, my sixth one. When you die, guess what happens? You lose it all. You don't get to like, Pile it in your casket and take it with you. If you did, what's it really matter? What's it going to do? Everything that you die trying to accumulate, you lose in the end. That's exactly what so much of Ecclesiastes is about. What is the phrase that Solomon says over and over again? Everything is what? Meaningless. Futile. And it's not like you read Ecclesiastes and you think to yourself, man, this guy is really depressing. He doesn't mean to depress. He means to redirect you away from things that are meaningless and things that are futile and to things that give you hope and enjoyment and fulfillment in life. Continuing on in Luke where we are reading, verses 18 through 21 say this about this man, this rich man. It says, I'll build these barns, I'll build bigger ones, then I'll have places to store all of my wheat and all of my goods. And then continuing on, he says this, I'll sit back, and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. 
Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And then God chimes in and he says this, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you have worked with for? Who will get everything that you've tried to amass? Yes, he says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. I don't want you to miss that last part. It's the most important verse in that entire story. Do everything that you want to in life. Amass all the wealth that you want. Amass all the fame, the fortune, the renown that you want in life. But if you do not have a rich relationship with God, it doesn't mean a thing. You can, can't take anything with you, guys. It's been said that he who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. But in reality, yes, you know it. He who dies with the most toys, what? Still dies. Dies. Can't take it with him. Last thing, the seventh pitfall of riches. The quest for riches is hard and bitter and exhausting. Because it's far better to get by with less than to spend your life chasing after more. And in the end, it's the attitude that brings us joy and satisfaction to know that we have enough. Verse 17, Solomon ends with this. Throughout their lives, people who pursue riches, they live under a cloud frustrated, discouraged, and angry. I just want to stop there for a moment. And if you are living your life under what Solomon calls a cloud, that you feel any of those emotions, may not necessarily mean that you're pursuing riches and wealth, but I can guarantee you this. If you're living under a cloud, it means that you are pursuing the wrong thing. You are pursuing something that is not God. I can guarantee you that. Solomon talks to it. Scripture talks about it. And in the end, the wisdom that Solomon gives us, the richest guy in all of history by far gives us is this. Pursuing money, focusing solely on riches is a joy sucker. Like, I don't know how many people wake up in the morning and they think to themselves, you know what? I would really just love to have all of the joy sucked out of me today. If that's you, oh. What a depressing life, guys. I'm sorry, but I don't know anybody who wakes up and thought, I, like, I don't want joy in my life today. I just want it all to be sucked out of me. A person who has it all but gets no joy from his privileges and his blessings, guys, is simply pitiful. Their money and their stuff serves no purpose but to be passed on to other people, which leads to an interesting thought to me. If you know Everything that you have, all the money that you have, all the resources at your disposal will be passed on to someone else. Wouldn't you want to have a say in that? Wouldn't you want to be strategic in your generosity and your giving? Wouldn't you want to tell your money where it goes and what it does? Our response for what we have been given and blessed with should result in sheer joy and enjoyment on our lives for what we have been given. Guys, here, here's a fact of the matter. I just want to stop at this moment and say this. Whatever we could give to God, guess what? Is not enough. It will never be enough. So again, that's why I say what I said at the very beginning. It's not about a dollar amount or about a percentage or about what it is that we attach to it. We could never give enough but to just give our heart to God. 
Our response for what we have been given and blessed with, like I said, should be pure joy. Ecclesiastes, he continues on. I just want to read three verses in chapter 6. He says, there is another serious tragedy that I have seen under the sun. It weighs heavenly, heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want, but then he doesn't give them the chance to ever enjoy these things. I would transport into that. Sometimes we don't even take enjoyment into the things we have. We're not even grateful for the things we have. We take for advantage the things that we have in our lives. They die and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is what? Meaningless. A sickening tragedy. A man might have a hundred children and live to be very old, which was a big thing back in their day to have many children. But if he finds no satisfaction, no joy, no enjoyment in life, and he doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better. Listen to this. If he had been born dead. I mean, that's pretty graphic, right? But like, do you get what Solomon is trying to say here, what he's trying to drive home with this? If you cannot be grateful and enjoy and then extend out in generosity the things that God has given to you, you might as well not even be alive because you are just wasting your life. Guys, there's no shame in money. There's no shame in possessions as long as we don't serve them, but they serve us. I want to say that again. Money does not, we don't serve money. Money serves us as we serve God and that we hold on to our resources and our possessions and our money with open hands. Guys, it's the difference, I think, between scarcity and abundance. A scarcity mindset and abundance mindset. And I want to show you what I mean by this. I have an illustration up here. This is what scarcity often looks like, and I think we understand this and recognize this. It starts with this idea of us consuming things, and we are a very consuming culture, a very consuming society. And so we consume, we consume, we consume, and then as soon as we consume too much, what happens? The next thing on the list there, we get this idea in our minds that we lack. Because guess what, guys? What did Solomon say? There is never enough to satisfy our desires. And so we lack. And then after we lack, we come around to the next side and we, we start to do this. And this is where so many people end up in life. There are probably most of us sitting in this room today that end up on this other side of this cycle. We fear. Because we start to think to ourselves, where's the next thing coming from? When is God going to give me? Is God going to give me? Will he give me enough? And we start to fear. And that's scarcity. And I'll tell you guys, most people operate from a scarcity mindset in their lives. And that's where that cloud comes in. But here's where God wants us to live, in an abundant mindset. And again, that doesn't mean that we just get anything that we want and have all kinds of cars sitting in the driveway. Abundance mindset. Go to the next one, Steve. In an abundance mindset, it is totally different. You will see it is not even close to a scarcity mindset. And it all starts with the idea of giving. We give. We give of our time. We give of our treasure. We give of our talents. And when we do that, God multiplies us. We're going to talk about this a little bit more here in just a minute. But whatever we give to God, whatever, whatever puny thing we may be able to give to God is never enough. God takes and makes it so much more than we could ever imagine. And then once God multiplies that, and we see God multiplying that, and we see God showing up time and time again in our lives, and God coming to give us enough, Exactly what we need, our faith grows and grows and grows. And that cycle continues to go. So, so what happens when our faith grows? What do we do naturally? We give more. 
we give more. Guys, the scarcity cycle and the emotions attached to it, fear, worry, and anxiety start in the mind. Do you know, do you know where Satan loves to live in our lives? We would think like he likes to live in the heart. No, you know where he likes to live? In the mind. Because the mind is very powerful. Mind often has control over our life. A seed is planted that we may not have enough, and then it starts to grow until we are more concerned with our well-being and our wallet than we are with heart growth and with the nature of generosity. Proverbs 23, 7 says it very simply this way about our mind, for, or about our mind and our heart. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Guys, scarcity starts in the mind. It starts in our and it leaks into our heart. It doesn't start in our wallet. It doesn't start in our bank account. What we think about, how we approach money, sets up our whole attitude towards money and generosity and giving. Guys, we're either going to hold on tight, hold on tight to our money and our possessions and our resources, and we're going to stunt our generosity, or we're going to hold our things, our stuff, with open hands. And we're going to allow God to use our resources in his time and in his plan. Here's what happens with scarcity. Scarcity often asks this, what can I afford? Better, let me, let me just kind of shift that a little bit. It really is not so much what can I afford, but what, what is this going to cost me? What's this going to mean for my life? What do I have to sacrifice? What do I have to cut out? Abundance doesn't ask, what can I afford? Abundance asks, what do I have? Do you see the difference, the vast difference between those two things? One says this. What, like, whoa, I'm, just, I'm, I'm seeing here what I have, and it's not a whole lot, God. I just, I'm, so here, I'll, I'll give this because I'm really scared. I'm really fearful. Where abundance says, you know what, I may, I may not have a whole lot, and again, I love that Dan brought that up. Guys, guess what? The Bible never says anywhere that we all have to give an equal amount, an equal measure. We give what God has compelled us to give, what our heart is calling us to give. We give out of what we have. Dan already read it this morning, but I want to come back to it and read it again. John 10.10 says this very simply. As Jesus is teaching his disciples, the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and a satisfying life, an abundant life. Guys, what happens when we start, stop living with a scarcity mindset and we start living with an abundant mindset? And here's what happens. When we give generously and when we give freely of everything in our lives, the first thing that God does is that God multiplies that abundantly more than we could ever understand. In fact, Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and he says these words, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. I think it's a very interesting statement. Like, could Paul right there at that moment, could he have said, here's the deal, I want you to give X amount of dollars. He could have done that, couldn't he have? I mean, he would have had the authority of God and Scripture behind it, but that is not the intent. Each must decide in your own heart which is a very dangerous thing. I mean, like, I look at God and I'm like, God, that was a really dangerous thing that you did right there. In your own heart, how much you could give. You don't give reluctantly. You don't give in response to pressure. He continues on saying, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully and generously 
and with open hands. And listen to this, please. Please do not miss this. God will generously provide everything, all that you need. Not want, not desire, not hope for. Everything that you need, continuing on. Then you will always have everything that you need and plenty, plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides the seed for the farmer and then the bread to eat. And in the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. Catch this, though. This is the end of it. I want you to hear what this is all about. This isn't about making us look good because we're generous. It's not just about helping people. It says, when we take your gifts to those who are in need, guess what? What happens? They will thank me. No, they will thank God. It is all about the glory of God. Generosity is not about our own well-being. It's not even about our blessing, but the blessing of others for the glory of God. Do you remember the story of the feeding the 5,000, right? And in Mark, we're told that uh, they're sitting there and God and Jesus takes it and he blesses it. And then I want to read what it says there. There are some very important words in here. So they sat down in groups of 50 and 100. Continuing on. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. And then the next part, I want you to notice what happens. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he what? He, it doesn't just say that he gave this out like what? It says that he kept giving and giving and giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. God multiplies abundantly. It's only happened because of the generosity and the gift given by a small boy that we find about, out about actually in John's gospel and his version of the story. I mean, can you think about a little boy that comes up with like crumbs and sardines and he says, well, I mean, God, this is kind of what I have. I mean, Jesus is kind of what I have. And Jesus said, that's fine. Give it here. Blesses it. I, I can't even imagine that day of sitting in that crowd and just watching like, did, like, like, did you, did you see what that boy brought? Like, it wasn't anything, guys. And do you see what's happening? That, that's faith growth that happens in that moment. That's heart growth that happens in that moment. Guys, and here's what I believe, and I feel scripture would back me up on this. Giving and generosity are not the same thing. I want you to hear that. Giving, by and large, is motivated by duty. It's something that I have to do. On the other hand, generosity is largely motivated by desire or delight. I get to do this. I have the privilege to do this. And one of the keys, if not the biggest key in moving from scarcity to abundance, is the giving of the tithe. Oh no. I didn't just say that, did I? I did. Guys, the tithe gets a really bad rap in the church. But the tithe is so critical in moving us from a mindset focused on not enough to a mindset focused on more than enough. 
Tithing breaks the cycle of too little and creates a new cycle tapped into God's endless supply of power and strength. Tithing prioritizes and places our focus in the direction that it should be, that it's intended to be on God himself. I want you to hear that, okay? So when you give on a Sunday or you give whenever you give, however you give, it's not about the gift. It's about the God that we focus on, the God that we serve and the God that we worship. In fact, if you're going to give or you're about to give money a position in your life that should only be occupied by God, reprioritize, refocus and do it fast. And guys, I just want to go through very quickly three things that tithing does, three things that giving does, three things that generosity does in life. Tithing does not mean, guys, that God will make you rich and well and prosperous. He may very well do that. I don't know, but there is nothing close to a guarantee like that in Scripture that you give and God just will make cars appear in your driveway and your bank account will suddenly just swell overnight. Here's the first and the most important thing about tithing. Tithing puts priorities in order. It puts God first. Deuteronomy 14, 23 says this. Does it say, yeah, there you go. Steve's like, I don't know. Does it? Yes, it does say that. He was reading it being like, I don't know what this guy about to say. It says, bring this tithe to the designated place of worship. And it continues on saying, doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord. Put the Lord first. In everything. Number two, tithing stretches and builds faith. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10 say this Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything that you produce. Then, don't miss that word, please. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. It doesn't say, hey, guess what? This is a guarantee. You do this and it will happen. But what he is actually saying there, what is so important for us to catch is if you do not honor God with your resources, then he will not even get close to blessing you and being a blessing through you. It requires faith to give God our first and to give God our best. If you give God scraps, what faith is there? We give our first and our best because God gave his absolute best. Romans 5, 8, what does it say? Steve, there you go. It says it. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's, that's best. That's God's best. Tithing is our response, guys, to Romans 5, 8. Tithing is God, giving God our first and our best so that he can bless the rest. Number three, tithing provides for the work of the church very simply. Malachi 3.10, I think it was up there. I just want to read a small part of it. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. It's not about the church. It's about what the church can do, about the ministry the church can do. And the church cannot do ministry if money's not there, guys. It's as simple as that. It's not a hard equation. It's all he's saying here in Malachi 3.10. Guys, and here's what I believe. I just want to say this is one of the most important and helpful things to me in thinking about giving and tithing. Giving and generosity and tithing is a, what I call and what some people have called a ladder process. 
Because people don't automatically start out on the top rung of the ladder. Many times you have to work your way up that ladder. And here's what I mean by it. The three things here, the, the, the three types of givers that you will find. You'll find the spontaneous giver, giving on a whim when the need arises, when it comes to your attention. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing inferior about this type of giving. We all need to start there. Giving when we're prompted to, when we feel we're moved to. The story of the good Samaritan, what does the Samaritan do? He takes and he provides for the man that's been beaten and he goes and says, I'll pay for all this and if his needs go over that, I'll come back and I'll pay even more. And here's what I believe, guys. I don't believe the Samaritan went out that day and was just looking to give. Oh, look, what can I do today to just give of my stuff? But giving and loving found him. And do you know what he did? He responded in an instant, spontaneously. There's also the strategic giver. Isaiah 32.8 says this about their strategic giver. Generous people plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. There is not only the spontaneous and the strategic giver, there is the sacrificial giver. And I believe, guys, this is where God is trying to move all of us to to the point where we are looking for and we are alert to needs around us, we're prepared to respond with generous and radical giving. And here is really an interesting thought. Do, do you know this about money? Money is really valueless. I mean, it has no value until we attach value to it. And we attach value to money and, and value to things according to where our money goes and what it is spent on. And what I believe God wants all of us to hear this morning is that he wants our trust. He wants our heart of trust. He wants us to trust him in the tithe. He wants us to trust him enough to be generous, to play in that generosity, to be strategic in that generosity, and for us to start being generous now. Guys, I, I, I don't care where you start on the ladder and what God calls you to, but start now. Start somewhere to give of your time and your talent and your treasure. It's part of the ladder process I was talking about. You may be sitting here asking yourself, you know what, right? I mean, this, is, this is all fine and well and good, but guess what? I am no Solomon. I mean, I have no riches. I have no fortune. I have nothing to speak of in comparison to Solomon. But do you want me to give you some good news and some bad news? Good news first. Guys, the good news, you're rich. You're rich beyond what you can even imagine. If you don't believe me, do you guys have more than you need? Yes, I think probably all of us could say that. You're rich. And this is how obscenely rich some of us are. I want you to just think about your household income. I'm not going to ask you to share it or text it in or show it anywhere. But just think about your household income. If you earn just $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Some of you are saying, well, I only make $32,000. If you make anywhere around $32,000, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. If you have two wage earners in the home and you earn $80,000 together, you are in the top 0.1% of all of the wage earners in the world. Guys, the point is wherever you fall on that scale, in between, above, below, what I've talked about, you are rich. 
In fact, I want to put a slide up here, and I want to give you a moment to copy this down if you would like to do this. I found this on Google. Go, is it there? The How Rich? There we go. If you want to copy down this uh, link up here at the top, givingwhatwecan.org forward slash get involved forward slash how rich am I. What you do is you go and you plug in all the statistics about your house, how many are in the house, how much your annual uh, average you know, income is, and it tells you that you are in the certain percentage of richest in the world. And it tells you this, which is, I find very neat. And this isn't even a religious website, but it says if you were to give 10%, here's where you would be in the richest of the world. And you know what happens? It doesn't even deem your riches. It just literally brings it down like point something percent. If you don't want to put all that in and copy all that down, just go to Google and type in how rich am I. First thing you come up to should be this thing from givingwhatwecan.org. And guys, that's the good news, that you are rich. Do you want to know the bad news? that you are rich. The problem with that and the reason that it is bad news is that often it, being rich leads to a lack of dependence. It causes us to get our priorities out of whack and it means that we have a greater personal responsibility, a burden, if you will. I have found this verse in 1 Timothy and it has so convicted me and it speaks so to the heart of the truth that I just have to read it this morning. It says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to what? Trust in their money, which is so unreliable, so fleeting. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives all of what we need for our enjoyment. There it is again, guys, joy. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Guys, do you want to lack joy in your life? Probably not. No one does. But if you chase after money and possessions and things and stuff, you will lack joy. If you, be, if you want to become great at lacking joy, become great at being ungrateful. You'll lack joy. If you constantly play the comparison game, you'll lack joy. Besides, guys, there will always be someone who has more than you. There will always be someone who has better than you. And if you elevate the temporary over the eternal, guess what, guys? You will lack what? Joy. And here's what happens when we lack joy. It leads to a life of dissatisfaction. It leads to a life and a feeling that what Christ can offer to me is not as good as what the world and money can offer to me. Guys, can, I can't put it any plainer than this right here. Christ is greater than your greatest satisfaction in this life. Whatever that is, money, possessions, or the like, he is greater than any satisfaction. He's greater than any dissatisfaction that you have in this life. His joy, his real joy is greater than the biggest joy sucker that you have in your life. Money promises what only God can give. Money promises happiness. God gives joy. Money promises security. Only God can give us true comfort and peace. Proverbs tells us that, that the, the rich put their hope and their, their security in, in riches. But it says the strength, the, the strength really is in, in God. He is a strong tower. Guys, this morning's mantra, the hope that we stand on is, I want you to say this with me. I have this up here on the screen. I'm, I have a whole phrase that I want to break down and have you say 
and stand in this morning. Steve, can you bring that, the first part of it? God has blessed me with more than I need. Say that. I am rich. I will not trust in riches. And this last part better be the loudest of all. But I will trust in him who richly provides. And because we have been blessed richly, we give richly. Truly rich people find joy in giving of their time and their talents and their treasure. Guys, we only live this life one time. We don't get a do-over. So make this life count. And we make our lives count by living in generosity with open hands. Don't waste your life. Use it for the kingdom and use it for God's glory. The theologian Jim Carrey... Yes, Jim Carrey of Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura. Fame once said this. Like, I, I could have captured this in a better way, guys. He says, I think that everybody should get rich and everybody should get famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of in life so that they can see that it's not the answer. Oh, guys, money is nice. Money can be good. But if money is a source of your joy, you will have severe problems. Two scriptures that I want to read and end with today. Luke 12, 15 again. We've read it earlier in the service, but I want to read it again. He says, beware. Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own, how much you have, how much you can show off. And then the last one comes from Hebrews, and I love this. And we stand in this this morning, guys. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, untouchable, unperishable, let us be thankful and grateful and joyful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. Let's pray. Lord, I ask this morning that what has been spoken this morning is not just money and giving and a tithe, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's, it's a trust issue. It's a heart issue. And I pray Lord, that your word has pierced our hearts this morning to a degree that we cannot turn away. That each one of us in our lives, whatever you are calling us to and whatever you're calling us to do, that we would be generous, that we would live lives, live our lives with open hands at all times. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me?